What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Rob Petrozo. Rob is the co-founder and chief product officer at Rally, one of the world's leading technology companies. The core value prop driving Rally's explosive growth is simple. As alternative asset classes continue to gain popularity, they source and acquire the world's most unique and expensive collectibles and allow users to buy, trade, and sell equity shares in those assets. So Rob and I sat down and broke down the entire business. We talk about their founding story, how alternative assets have historically performed, what museums of the future might look like, and more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Rob, and I hope you do too. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a 24-7 personalized fitness wearable that's here to help you improve your recovery, sleep, fitness, and health. It's the one tech product that I wear 24-7. Here's how it works. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, respiratory rate, and heart rate variability. Your score lets you know how to approach your day, whether you should push yourself during your workout or activity, or if you should skip the gym and take a rest day. You wear your Whoop on your wrist, bicep, or now within one of their new smart clothing garments called Whoop Body. The band connects with an app on your phone, and it automatically measures your heart rate, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. The band also automatically detects and classifies your workouts, so there's never an issue in forgetting to press go on a run anymore. You can then analyze your activity levels in the app. There's also a ton of coaching features within it like Strain Coach, which gives you target workout exertion goals tailored to your body's recovery level for that day. Those goals change over the course of the day, depending on how active you've been. That coaching is where Roop really shines. Whether you're interested in how CBD or alcohol impacts your sleep and recovery, or you're just wondering how long of a run you should go on, Whoop is there to provide you with personalized data to make sure you're aware of the impact these decisions have on your body. And Whoop is now offering 15% off their new Whoop 4.0 right now with the code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P.com and enter Joe, J-O-E, at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Next up is 8Sleep. 8Sleep has dramatically improved my daily performance. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer and nature's best medicine. Consistent good sleep can help reduce the likelihood of serious health issues. Yet still more than 30% of Americans struggle with sleep and temperature is one of the main causes of poor sleep. For me, I was never able to get a good sleep because I was always too hot. But now, I'm falling asleep in record time, faster than I have ever before. All thanks to my 8Sleep Pod Pro Cover. The Pod Pro Cover by 8Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. You can add the cover to any mattress and start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees Fahrenheit or as hot as 110 degrees Fahrenheit. The temperature of the cover will adjust each side of the bed based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. The result? Eight sleep users fall asleep up to 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, and get overall more restful sleep. The Pod Pro covered by Eight Sleep is so popular that it has garnered attention from CEOs, high performers such as Olympic gold medalist Red Gerard, and top CrossFit athletes, including the 2021 fittest man on earth, Justin Medoras, and UFC heavyweight champion, Francis Ngannou. They're all powered by Eight Sleep to make the most of their workouts and recovery. Remember, good sleep is the ultimate game changer. So go to eightsleep.com slash Joe to check out the Pod Pro cover and save $150 at checkout. Eight Sleep ships to the USA, Canada, and the UK. All right, let's get into this episode. 
Joe Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, I'm here with Rob Petrozo. I hope I pronounced that right. I just asked him before this. He's co-founder <laughs> and chief product officer now, I believe, of Rally Collectibles Business. Rob, how are you doing? Doing all right, man. How about you? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for joining me today. I'm pumped to talk to you. You built a really cool business already, but you guys are doing some really interesting things. At the intersection, I feel like everything, sports, business, crypto now, collectibles, obviously, but you guys are doing a bunch of different asset classes. Maybe that's a good place to start, actually, just like the 30,000 foot view on what Rally is and what people should know about you. Yeah, man. So, I mean, everything's everything's an investment now. Everything's a collectible. So for us, we always looked at it, you know, five, six years ago when we started this business of what are the things that people care about now? What are they going to care about in the future? How can we make those real equity in people's portfolios? So, you know, the last two or three years, everybody recognizes that sports cards and obviously NFTs, all these spaces have been these real huge collector and investment classes. But for us, early on, we started with classic cars. We went into a bunch of asset classes that felt like that. It was, what are these assets that mean a lot to a lot of people, have made a lot of money, but for a small group and have a history of appreciation? And how can we package those up with a story and turn it into a place where you can trade equity the same way you might trade stocks or the same way now you would trade NFTs? And that's kind of led to where we are today, which is you know 22 different asset classes and $40, $50 million in the management now. 400 individual assets, a true trading system that allows you to buy and sell based on bid-ask. And it's really this whole ecosystem of collecting and equity where they all kind of meet in this world where your portfolio is kind of your identity. And that's that's where we are now, you know, five years later. In the beginning, it was an idea and we weren't sure if it was going to work. And now it's something that fractionalization and investing alternative assets is so the norm. We're just trying to stay ahead of it at this point. Yeah, I love it. It certainly worked because there's a bunch of competitors now that have spawned up and are, are trying to replicate to some degree what you guys are doing, whether it's in sports or, or something else. So one of the things I want to understand, though, is at a fundamental level, right, just the process that you guys do to make this work, right? So you guys buy, let's just use an example. You guys buy a car, for example, which you guys started with, $500,000 car, $600,000 car, something that's unique. You buy it. You basically turn it into an LLC, which is my understanding, right? And then mm -hmm. you divvy up shares of that LLC and offer that to people on the secondary market. Is that is that generally how it works? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, as much as I do at this point. I mean, it's one of those things where we want to make it feel and act very much like the markets that people understand best. So we use something called, it's reggae, which is, it kind of sprung out of the Jobs Act, which was around crowdfunding. And we do our version of kind of IPOs. So we'll get an asset, whether it's on consignment, whether it's a partnership, whether we buy it outright opportunistically, We'll take the asset, break it into shares, anywhere between 2,000 and 20,000 or 30,000 shares, sometimes even more, make the share price affordable, so $10 a share, $15 a share. We do the initial offering with no minimums to buy, so you can buy one share and get access to any of these assets, whether it was a car or a Birkenbag or a watch or a board Ape or whatever it is that goes in your portfolio. After the initial offering is done, there's a 90-day period, give or take, where we let it cool off, kind of like the regular way an IPO might wait a little bit before it trades. Then it opens on our secondary market where bid ass sets the price going forward through registered broker dealers. So it has a lot of the dynamics that you would see in a regular stock purchase, but we do it in a way where it's almost like getting in on the IPO as opposed to having to only be able to get it in the secondary market. And we do that with every type of asset, tangible and intangible. Gotcha. So I assume the easiest way to think about this is it's unique things that the average person wouldn't have access to because they're typically out of their price range. Is that correct? 
Yeah, and it's things that, you know, for us, like curation is a huge part of what we do. And we want to make sure that Who's somebody- curating the stuff for you guys? That's all of us. So it's like, that's like part of like a core competency of basically everyone at this company. So the, the fights that we have internally are never about like product direction or strategy. It's about like, you know, not this board ape, this other board ape. And everybody has their own opinion about it. And everybody wants to sort of get their opinion heard. But for us, it's a mix of data and intuition. And those kind of match in such a way that it's a mix of culture and finance. And we always want to make sure that we're curating in such a way that it could be in a museum and probably should be in a museum, but maybe it isn't right now because the group that really cares about it doesn't even know that's available as an investment. So when we get anything, curation is always the point A of anybody that works on our team internally, the advisors and the experts in the space we keep around us to validate a lot of these decisions. And then the data on the platform and where users want us to go dictates a lot of where we go with that too. And how do you guys make money? So we do a couple of ways. We have a sourcing fee that's attached to all these offerings, somewhere around 7%, let's say, give or take. A lot of times we'll buy opportunistically in such a way that we kind of see ahead of the curve. So we're always putting out assets at what we believe fair market value to be and what our advisory panel and the people around us believe fair market value to be based on comps in the space and, and individual sales and insurance values. But also we're finding assets in such a way that it's a really easy way to list an asset and not have to go through the typical auction model or try and find a buyer for some of these like one of one type assets that only have a small pool of individuals who can afford the whole piece. If you come to us, it might be a situation where our user base really wants it, really understands it. You have an easier time selling it to us. We'll bake that sourcing fee in into the offering and not necessarily have to raise the price of the asset where it's in fair market value. The buyer's getting the best possible deal. The seller's getting a deal quicker and a better deal with us than anywhere else with any auction house. And we get the deal done that's incentivized on all sides. We also take a small position in each of these assets that we buy at the same price that you would pay as a shareholder or as a buyer during that initial offering process. So we're incentivized to find the best assets at the best price because we have skin in the game too. So you know we believe in all these assets. We're playing that game with you. And we have equity that we want to see appreciate over time as well. And we can't sell in the secondary market. So we require ourselves to find an exit before we get paid out on those assets. Then there's a bunch of other elements that we're working on now. And in the future, there'll be a model that really provides way more value on data and individual offerings and things to our investors that there might be a subscription for. We might be able to sort of turn that into a product that's independent of just the investment. But in terms of like the free tier, which will always be there, that for us is about finding the best quality assets and providing those to our investor base and growing the platform and growing the liquidity around it. Gotcha. And what does your typical customer look like? I'm assuming it skews somewhat younger. Yeah. I mean, it depends on the asset a lot of times too, because we have, we'll have deals that have an 18 year old in them and an 80 year old in them. And it might be an NFT or it might be, you know, something that you wouldn't expect an older generation to respect, or you might see like an 18 or 20 year old and like a Mickey Mantle rookie card. So for us, like the median is somewhere around 30 years old, let's call it. And, you know, tech empathetic, open to new experiences, wants to sort of connect with some sort of nostalgia, either past, present, or even in the future and have something now that's the original, the best in class. A lot of times it's somebody who they might spend two, 300 bucks on a pair of sneakers at the same time, having like the original version of that Jordan three and having in your portfolio. And the one that Michael wore in that 88 season is important to them as part of the experience of owning that and owning that moment as well. So it's a really, it runs the gamut of like age gender, excuse male right now. And it's, it's starting to grow in a bunch of different categories with the female audience. But at the same time, like investing doesn't have a race or a religion or a gender or an age. It's one of those things that right now is so part of the zeitgeist. And it's really understanding that investing is an important part of life in general for everyone has really changed the dynamic of what our platform looks like in the last two or three years specifically. 
So I got two questions based off of that. One is actually about just kind of the look and feel of a portfolio today for a younger generation or a different generation. And then two is how the assets actually perform. Do you guys have any insight into like how many people or what percentage of people actually think about these as asset classes now, right? I'm assuming that number has grown a lot over time and what percentage of people actually include, whether it's shoes, cars, board apes, whatever it might be in their actual financial portfolio? Yeah, I mean, that's... That's the most, and we have like a whole data team right now. And a lot of the focus is on understanding the needs of that new investor, because what we've seen over the last two years specifically is that everything is kind of an asset class now. And like, I'm using the word kids liberally, but kids now, they don't necessarily see something and think about it as like, eh, that's not, that's not something I want to put my money into. They're trying to find a way to turn it into an investment. So when you see a kid now who on their phone has a MetaMask wallet, a Robinhood account, they're on GOAT trading sneakers. They're on rally trading equity and assets. All of it to them is part of this experience in investing. And what we've seen is that a lot of times that starts with just general interest in a space. So you might come to rally, and this is a lot of our, our earliest cohorts look like this. And even now, as you get the new asset classes, you'll come in for one specific asset that you recognize. And it might be Michael Jordan, or it might be a Birkenbag, or it might be a specific Rolex, or it might be a Bored Ape. When you get here, you make that first investment. And it's more of like that passion-led investment that starts it turns into a real investment decision. It turns into your portfolio really quickly because then you start to see like this board ape is interesting. I, I heard about it from this one particular person. Maybe like I saw Snoop Dogg bought one and I bought it. But now you start looking around Rally and it's like, all right, this Harry Potter first edition, that's something I also remember from my childhood. I read that book. I didn't realize there were only 500 of that first version. I didn't realize only this 200 were in these libraries and that became this very specific moment in the first edition. Now you make your second investment there. And now you have a bunch of really sophisticated young kids who look at all of these as potential investments. They have access to all the information about it. They have a little bit of nostalgia and a little bit of recognition of what it was when they were younger. And now they have a full portfolio of things they actually care about instead of just you know stocks with ticker symbols. And that's what we've always tried to get away from. And it just so happens that the world and the culture and everything around us kind of caught up to that over the course of the last two or three years specifically. Yeah, my guess would be that some people are probably indexing on there too also, right? They're getting exposure to everything regardless of what it is. They say, hey, I'll put in you know, $50 or $100 or $200 in every IPO that you guys do because maybe they don't understand the intricacies or the nuance of each individual item, but maybe they just want exposure to the asset class in general. Nah, for sure. And that's that's what their unfair advantage is too. Like the aversion to risk and a lot of the factors that prevented like me in my late 30s from making investments in assets and alternative assets when I was 18 or 19 years old, a lot of those don't exist anymore. Not just from an access perspective where the on-ramps like Rally exist, but from a mental perspective of these should be part of an index portfolio. I should be sort of making investments in assets and hard assets or intangibles now so that in 20 or 30 years I have this full portfolio. So when they see this, that's like that's a 19 or 20 year old's unfair advantage right now is that they can see all of these and they want to prepare for the future while they're young and the things that they know and they recognize. And they'll make bets across a gamut of individual assets to kind of create their own index and create their own portfolio of assets around it. We see that a lot with NFTs now too, where 50% of our investors on Rally who invested in an NFT made their first NFT investment on Rally. And then more of those made their second investment in an NFT or came from a, a tangible asset and made their second investment in an NFT. They see it. They know it's something that's important right now. They know the seven or eight, some of the, you know, the best, the rarest board apes are on rally. So they'll buy all of them. And we see more of that now than we did with tangible assets, but also over the, again, over the course of the last like 18 months, the investment strategies of an 18 or 19 year old have gotten so much more sophisticated than when I was 18 or 19 years old. It's really interesting to watch. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about the actual return of this asset class, because I think it's probably fragmented enough where people don't necessarily understand exactly how it works. 
And I, I just pulled up an email from you from, from last year because I knew you sent me some data previously. And of course, this has changed, obviously, depending on kind of the market dynamics. But when you sent me the email last year, year to date, this email was sent in September. So majority of the portion into the year at this point, your guys average return on sports cards and collectibles across the platform was 70% year over year. Right. So the, the one year return was 70%. And regardless of basically any asset class you look, that was beating that asset class, right? Whether it was stocks, whether it was bonds, whether it was real estate, whether it was crypto, whatever it might be. Is that kind of consistent with what you guys have seen over time? I think last year was a wild year. I think returns on everything were nuts. And that's never in, like, you know, yeah. never investment advice. My lawyers make us say that. I have to say that every time. And past, you know, past performance is not indicative of future returns, no question. I have a disclaimer at the beginning of the podcast. <laughs> We're good. I basically yeah. knows if you come to this show for investment advice, you're an idiot. <laughs> listen, and if you listen to anyone for investment advice and it's not you doing the part the research on your own, you're making a mistake. So I agree with you wholeheartedly on that. I should wear it on a exactly. t-shirt. I almost do half the time. But what happened in 2020 into 2021 was returns where you could have thrown a dart at any equity and kind of probably made some money in growth stocks that year too, like over that 18 month period. So there's always going to be outliers. What we've seen though is that the best-in-class assets are the ones that typically get the most attention. They get the most engagement. Those are the ones when you see exits on rally, they're typically the biggest. So individual asset classes will vary. The best of the best and the assets that are one of very few outside of rally are the ones that tend to get the attention. On rally, it's not that different in that, you know, we had in that period since that email was sent, we had two world records. One was a Mario Brothers game that sold for $2 million, the most expensive video game ever sold. It was a 9.8 A+. It was the, the best graded version of that early Mario that exists. Similarly, our PSA 9 Pele rookie card, 1958 Pele rookie card, sold a couple of months ago for $1.33 million. That was another world record, the first million-dollar soccer card ever sold. So what at least we've seen is that the asset classes that are now truly being treated like investments but are new and that goes for everything on Rally, every collectible. They're being looked at as investments, not just by these new young investors, but by the real collectors who now have a little bit of money. They're people that you know want to hold the best in class item. They come to Rally, they look at it as a museum where all of it is basically for sale. If you want to make an investment and you want to buy the whole asset, you can go to our investors and basically submit a buyout offer. If the investment class and, and the, the group around it agrees with the buyout, you can own that. And a lot of times right now, asset values have gone up into the right hard assets in particular over the course of the last two years so dramatically that a lot of those are premiums that are being paid that maybe wouldn't have been paid three or four years ago. But it is part of like, that's part of the access layer too. It's not just for, for the fractional investor, for somebody coming in and spending 100 or 200 bucks. It's for the, the collector who wants the museum quality piece, has the money to spend, and they're finding it on rally. What is the weirdest thing that you guys have IPO'd? There were a few that, there was some stuff that we turned down along the way that was extra weird. We had a, uh, if we couldn't authenticate it or there was any conversation around whether or not our user base wanted it, the pocket watch from the one of the staff on the Titanic, that was basically the same scene from the movie where the captain opens his pocket watch and looks down and it wasn't working anymore. That exact watch was one that came to rally really early that we wound up passing on. It didn't meet our level of underwriting standards, so we passed on that. There's a bunch of a bunch of dinosaur-related stuff that we're getting more access to now, but the first dinosaur we did on Rally, that didn't make a ton of sense until we really sort of put the story behind it to our user base. There, and then it was the aha moment, I think, having dinosaurs on Rally. But then also, like, we get the documents and the, the pieces of historical memorabilia that people didn't know existed, too. We did a broadside of the Declaration of Independence that we IPO'd on Rally that now is trading up dramatically after a buyout offer. We got Abraham Lincoln's favorite photo of himself 
that he signed. That's one of only three that exist in that exact condition that have that provenance attached to it. The stuff that's 200, 300 years old sometimes that comes to rally is stuff that even we didn't know existed until we had the conversation with the owner or the collector. They'll tell us it was passed down through three or four generations. They'll give us the whole story behind it. And then it becomes like that really important. We need to tell the story correctly before even putting it on rally. We get a lot of that, way more of it now than we did before the pandemic for sure. And are there any challenges? Like what has been the response to the digital stuff? I know you guys have done, I think you said a board ape. I, I think you've done a crypto punk also. But just talk me through like what people have experienced doing that, if people like it, if they if the demand wasn't as much as you guys thought, et cetera. Yeah, we're I mean, we're at like close to 30 individual NFTs. And when we think about NFTs as a portfolio makeup on rally, it's you know sub 10%. It looks like it's a lot because right now it's very in vogue and it gets the most attention on rally. But it's also the communities around, everybody talks about community, and that word is like overused way, way, way too much. It doesn't necessarily mean following. It means like real engagement around an asset. When you think about Bored Apes or you think about like Doodles or Azukis or any of the, the bigger NFT projects that when you look on Twitter are unavoidable, those are the ones that have brought a dramatically new audience to Rally in such a way that it's really hard to explain. Like I didn't really live through the dot-com burst. I was a little bit too young to really appreciate it. But the era of like web 2.0, when like the websites that I created when I first learned a little bit of code and I was like, you know, going to college and trying to figure out what I was going to do with my career, that feeling of like, this is so brand new and it feels like at the beginning of something, that is what the feel is right now. From an investment perspective, it feels the same way. These are, in my opinion, what will become the rookie cards in the future. What happens in 2021 and now in the beginning of 2022 with the big communities around these NFTs just started to come to rally. We did a, the first ever fractional dividend with ApeCoin, which was attached as a, basically as a dividend to board Ape owners. To do that in such a way where you have these three and $400,000, $500,000 JPEGs, and there's kind of like an airdrop that has free money associated with that. And there's, you know, 100,000 people a day talking about it on Twitter. It was unavoidable as an asset class on rally, but the dramatic increase in user activity that came from that was something I probably wouldn't have expected. Yeah. So it's obviously a better avenue probably to acquire customers, but I'm curious, how did the dividend work? So we, it was, ApeCoin was set up in such a way right, that- Like, let's let, yeah, let me go. explain exactly what happened first with ApeCoin, because yeah. I'm sure there's people that have absolutely no idea what that I is. I get caught, but, yeah. Dude, and I apologize. I get caught up sometimes. We talk about it internally, and like, I'm an old man in this office, and but like, the 21-year-olds yeah. in here are running circles around me when they're trying to talk about what we're going to do next, and what DAOs look like, and what the structure of these individual airdrops look like. I'm with you. I don't understand how people are interested in crypto and have like regular jobs that are not related to crypto because there's so much stuff happening within crypto that it makes it nearly impossible to follow everything. That's you have this is the, where we live in a time right now you have to pick one lane and go really deep on it. If you're in your 30s and you're trying to understand everything that's happening on every channel, you're going to lose your mind and go crazy. It's impossible. That said to give the high level, if you owned a board ape in a wallet before this one specific moment about a month and a half ago, there was a DAO which is this decentralized autonomous organization that set up a token, which was based around governance for the Ape DAO. This is going to get really complex. That allowed you to claim tokens just for holding on to this this board Ape in your wallet for X amount of time. So we had, you know, the easiest way to think about it is if you owned a board Ape, you got free money. That's the you got free internet money if you own the board Ape in what was called ApeCoin. It was its own currency. It just so happened that ApeCoin started trading. And it went up and to the right and it made a lot of money. And it was a you know a $10 coin or a $12 coin. We had seven board apes and a bunch of mutant apes that qualified for this airdrop. And you got anywhere between 2,500 and 10,000 tokens. 
So all in, we got about just under half a million dollars in distributions for those tokens in our wallet. So it was sitting there and we looked at it as a real, a great opportunity to connect with the community and distribute that at basically the same way. If you owned a board ape on rally before that moment, then you got free money. It was anywhere from like 78 cents was the smallest dividend payout up to like, you know, thousands of dollars if you own more shares of individual board apes. So we tried to do it in such a way that we look at it as a dividend. It's the same way if you own, you know, Apple or you own any stock that's a dividend paying stock at a certain point, you get extra money in your wallet just for owning it and being a part of the community. That's kind of what a little bit of the promise of what NFTs hold for the future and what tokens hold for the future. But for us, you have so many investors on Rally who they're not crypto native. They're not, you know, 17 year olds know everything about every DAO, every token, every NFT that drops. So there's no MetaMask wallet, no gas, there's no potential for loss, all those things that happen for loss of actual asset in a wallet, all the things that you would worry about with a typical NFT purchase, we try to strip out all of that. So in the same way, when there's an airdrop of free money that goes to those token holders, there's no reason that we wouldn't repackage that as cash and drop it to individual board ape holders on Rally. So you basically sold the ape coin and then converted it to cash. And yeah, we locked in our gains over the course of 24 hours at a price of a little over $9, I believe. What was left was the half a million dollars in this bank account. That bank account was distributed to all the owners of individual board apes on Rally at pro rata based on their shares. Gotcha. All right. That makes sense. That was a complex explanation to what you said, which is basically if you owned a board ape on Rally, you got free money. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's also confusing for a lot of people too, because people in the traditional world are like, that's not exactly how these things work, right? But it kind of was. <laughs> you got airdrop <laughs> yeah. free money, essentially. And, and some people sold it, some people kept it, and it has a value for sure. I want to talk a little bit about raising money. You guys started this business, I think it was in 2016. I'm assuming it was a little more challenging than it is now to raise money. I know you guys raised a, I think it was a $30 million Series B last year. But talk to me about how that process has changed from the beginning till now. When we were raising money early on in New York, it was super challenging. I mean, it was, it was you know, 2016. There were two issues and they've come kind of full circle. One, this is when like ICOs were a craze and these, these initial coin offerings, which were the earliest version of you know raising money via crypto and via token. Everybody was doing it, but there was no real sort of view from the regulatory bodies about what crypto was going to be or what any of raising money with crypto was going to be. So we want to stay away from that, even though that was all the rage at the time. The second was that we were a fintech business, but at the same time, trying to explain to somebody that in the future, people will be investing, regular retail investors will be investing in assets when at that point it was classic cars and we were talking about sports cards and, and Birkin bags and watches, we were talking about all of it back then. You're talking to really, really wealthy people to try and get money from them and telling them that a 21-year-old is going to really care about putting $100 or $200 into an asset. And to them, they're saying, why wouldn't I just buy the whole asset? And I get it. I don't have $100 million. I don't have $20 million. But if I did and someone came to me and said, people are going to really care about putting $100 and $200 into something, you probably look at them and say, what are you talking about? So that was like the big challenge early. Then it was about explaining how we were going to scale the business because, again, we invented it. So like the idea of using Reg A+, which we use now, to turn assets into LLCs that get fractionalized and you can buy shares required a crazy amount of legal work that my partners, Chris and Max, thank God, they allowed me to just be the creative. They spearheaded all that and dealt with the lawyers for you know, 24 hours a day for a year straight. So once we had all those pieces in place... We were just going to VCs, anybody that would take any meeting and like begging for money, just like anyone does when you're raising money to try and get like, you know, a couple million bucks to keep this business afloat and turn it into what we knew it could be. But every single door got closed. I think it was something it was like, it was like 300 something. We had a number somewhere. That was like the chip on our shoulder at one point. It was like 320 people said no to us. And then one of the first people we found was Howard Lindzen at Social Leverage, who was one of the earliest investors in Robinhood. But also like 
he's a maniac and I love him for that. Like he's somebody who really looks at the future and wants to see around the turn. He's trying to figure out what a young investor is going to do next. He saw this in such a way that it made sense immediately. We had a really pretty deck that I spun up that I think caught his attention to. And then we started talking about what we thought the future was going to look like. And we said at a certain point, everybody's going to have assets in their portfolio the same way they have Tesla stock and Apple. You're going to have, you know, Porsche and Rolex and all these pieces in your portfolio and you can connect with the things that you care about. And he really understood it. And he was a big part of one of those early rounds that opened the door to a lot of different rounds that came after that. And then it was upfront we went to for our, our next round who really understood consumer and Greg Batnelli over there who really was instrumental in, in getting GOAT to where it is right now in a bunch of different marketplaces and was at eBay and a bunch of peer-to-peer marketplaces. And then now with Excel, bringing in somebody who's dealt with a lot of the biggest consumer companies in the world and sees where the scale could be was the natural progression. And Wheelhouse, who did our, our in-between round last as well, who's a mix of culture and production company. They do a bunch of big TV shows and they have this great investing arm. And they kind of, everybody sees now that consumer and investing are one and the same. And I think that was really hard early on to get people to understand it. What does the business look like maybe 5, 10, 15 years from now? Dude, that's a good question, man. I mean, the we're in this world now where five years moves in like a week, it feels like. And it's just everything. Innovation is so consolidated. I think the one thing that never changes is that when you get older, you want to be young again, as opposed to when you're young and you're like, oh man, I just can't wait till I'm 21 years old. I can't wait till I'm 30. Like it was a weird thing when you see that. I remember like being 16 and seeing like a 40 year old and being like, oh, they're so old, but man, they probably know so much stuff. I think that 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 search for what's next is something that everybody is thinking about nonstop now. So for us, from a consumer and from an investing perspective, it's finding the most relevant assets for the next 20 years. And for us, that might mean NFTs or you know metaverse real estate, or it might mean you know a new type of real estate that we're thinking about that's actually tangible and thinking about how the dividend structure might work. But in the future, it really is a world I feel like we're getting to where everything will be an investable asset. And now I walk down the street in New York and I'm looking around and I might see you know, somebody walking by with like a nice watch. And I know exactly what the, the appreciation was on that watch over the last year. Or you know, I walk by a restaurant, I'm thinking about what the price per square foot of that restaurant is and if they're going to franchise it. I can't get any of this stuff out of my head now and everything's an investment around me. I think everybody is getting to that point now where you should have the opportunity, and I believe you will in the next five and 10 years especially, if you see something that you care about, you want to get on the ground floor, you should be able to come to rally and make that investment on the spot. And that could be anything. If you're seeing a band for the first time and they don't have, you know, they don't even have a record deal yet, but you have that feeling, you could see around the turn, you know, they're going to be huge to be able to invest on the spot and be a part of the, the publishing and part of the royalty stream for that band and part of the merch sales when they go on tour and really everything be fan owned or be creator owned or be owned by the people who care most about it, I think is what's going to happen in the world. I can't see any reason that rally is not going to be at the front of that. Yeah, it's amazing because in my mind, you guys, when you think about startups in general, and we'll, we'll use a really overgeneralization here, but you can have the right idea, but the wrong time, right? And you can come in and you can be five years too early, 10 years mm -hmm. too early, something like that. But I almost feel like you guys hit it at a great time. Maybe it took two or three years to really see the traction or whatever might have been on your side. But ultimately, if you think about what's happened over the last year or two years, everyone's an investor now right? What's happened on Reddit? What's happened with Robinhood? I'm sure Robinhood was a big accelerator of that, right? You think of just equities mm -hmm. in general, but now everyone wants to be an yep. investor, even if they have $5, $10, $20 no to invest. You're seeing a lot more retail action than I think we probably previously did. And it's turned into this weird game now where everyone's looking for this edge and you're not going to go buy some random $100 of Ford stock, right? Maybe you buy Tesla or something like that, but you're also going to want exposure to a watch. You guys are doing wine. You're doing a dinosaur. There's so many different asset classes now where I feel like, especially over the last two to three years, 
the world has really changed from a perspective of just the base of investors has probably expanded dramatically. I mean, no question. It's just, it's one of those things where aspirationally, you can see something that you want, you can turn those aspirations into equity now. And that's like what we specialize in. That wasn't the case before all the things that you just said, because it was, you know, when I got out of school, it was like a 401k index funds and like a little bit of options trading. And now it's like, I look at my little cousin's portfolios and like they show me their phone and it's bonkers to me. I'm just like, they look at everything as potential alpha. And that goes for anything, whether it's an actual investment, the information they have access to, you know, the way that they're using social media platforms, all of it is alpha to them. And they look at it like they want to take more risks, but they also, they do have the unfair advantage of being young enough to make the mistakes now. I think that was the thing early on that, that my generation didn't have. Everybody was scared to death to lose every dollar in 2008, 2009. And like I did, I did lose every, I was investing like a little bit of money that I had. I lost everything. And there was never a time where I thought my head like by the dip. That's what their mentality is now. And that's what Reddit and I think a lot of a lot of what's happened in finance and in young retail finance over the last five years has been like find the opportunity. The information asymmetry is not there anymore. I could find out whatever I want to find out before it's on a Bloomberg terminal. And now the on-ramps like rallies and the places like us that exist to buy it at the level you're comfortable with exists. Those are all meeting head on. That's not going to change. That changed for good right now. Like that's not going to shift back to the way it was at this point. It's too far gone. That's a great thing in my mind, right? No question. So I got one more question for you. I want to talk about if you get to use any of these items. My vision of you right now is like you strolling down Fifth or Sixth Ave in a 1967 Mustang fast bag. You got the Rolex on the wrist, maybe the dinosaur bones in the back. Are you guys like testing out these <laughs> items? Are you using them? Are you just storing them in a facility? Like how does that work? I would say I wish that was the case, but then like the company would be in jeopardy. So I don't really wish it was the case. Part of me is happy that I don't have access to all the stuff because it is something that will, when we get a new item before it's securitized and before it goes through the process with the SEC, we'll have them in the office sometimes for a photo shoot or so they can really understand the product so that the team here can really get a look at it if it's something really unique and understand how it all works. But that stuff for us is like, it's great. We have a lot of stuff in this office that's like the second tier of the collectibles that are on Rally. The one that belongs in like a personal collection. The stuff that's on Rally, we look at as like the museum quality asset. So we have a storage facility that's like a giant spot on the East Coast that's essentially a vault. But it's also set up in such a way when you go there, it feels like you're in a museum and we're trying to do more of that. So we have our museum space here in New York and Soho. We're opening a much bigger space in Broadway. It'll be open. Uh, Broadway and Howard will be open in about a month and a half, two months, give or take. That's going to be like all the most important stuff and the stuff that our users want to see and want to be around will be in that space, which will be open for retail. And that's what we envision like the future of museums being. So it'll be here. It'll be part of the conversation always. It'll always be on display. But taking out for a spin is something that unfortunately for me, but fortunately for investors will never happen. Yeah. I was going to say, if you're an investor, you probably don't want you scratching the car or the watch or whatever it might be. I'm the, yeah, I'm the wrong guy, man. I'm a horrible driver too. My girlfriend can tell you that. <laughs> I love it, man. I love it. Well, thanks so much for doing this, dude. We'll have Likewise. to do it again, hopefully soon. I know you guys are going to keep killing it like you are today. Where can we send people to learn more about Rally and find you on the internet? Rallyroad.com, rallyrd.com. We're on rallyrd on Twitter and rally on Instagram. Even me personally, like everybody has like my email, my phone number for the most part, a lot of like thousands of our users. I'm always open to have the conversation. That's one of like the strong points here. We try and make sure everybody's always in communication with the people who are making these decisions at Rally to curate, to bring stuff to the platform, to build products. So any feedback, any conversation, I'm personally always open to it. Everybody here the same way is always open to the conversation with everybody. I love it, man. That's awesome. Thanks again for doing this. Now, likewise. Thank you, brother. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Palm Show. 
Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.